0: Hey, why don't we turn to Matthew 24, and we're going to go ahead and finish our study in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' response to a few questions that the disciples asked, namely uh, uh, having to do with the destruction of the temple. That takes place in 70 AD. Luke actually deals with that in Luke 21. Uh, Matthew and Mark don't really record Jesus addressing that issue. Luke does, though. But um, all three, and including especially Matthew and Mark, we see Jesus really focusing on The other two questions, the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. And so we're going to go ahead and finish um, this last uh, handful of verses here, which is rather brief and really is rooted or uh, revolves around an encouragement now that Jesus has said all the other stuff that he has said. He's talked about the signs of his coming. He's talked about um, all kinds of very particular sorts of things that are going to define the last days. False teaching, uh, false teachers, false Christs, Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes, all these kinds of things. Um, The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. We've covered all these things in previous episodes, so I'll invite you to go ahead and watch those if you haven't already or listen to them. But we're going to look at this last part now. I'm going to include verse 44, which we talked about last time, but we're going to include it in this passage here. Now, in our last episode, we made the point that verse 44, the preceding verses about the not knowing the day or the hour of his coming doesn't have to do with the rapture. It has to do with his second coming. And uh, you can follow the previous episode for that information. But I'm going to include verse 44 as we finish the section. Therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, you want to stop and ask yourself what it's there for. And so the previous teaching of the text, the idea of not knowing the day or the hour of his coming... Uh, and that kind of thing. That is the thing that is the therefore. So therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? It's a good question. Who is that good and wise servant or faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season or at the right time? The idea here is that of stewardship. Sir, A servant uh, over a household is somebody who is a steward of the master's goods, the master's household, the master's servants. So a faithful and wise steward, servant, one who's been placed in charge with responsibility is about his master's business. Taking care of uh, the rest of the servants, making sure that things are done, uh, making sure that Everything that is that would normally happen in the master's absence continues to happen, or when the master was there, continues to happen in his absence. A faithful servant is one who recognizes what his master expects and is about that. A wise servant is one who does so with the knowledge that he's going to see his master one time. He may not know when the master is going to return, but he knows that he will. And so therefore, he thinks very wisely, when the master comes, I don't want to be slothful, I don't want to be sitting on the couch watching TV. I want to be doing the work that He's given me to do. I want to be making sure that I fulfill, uh, faithfully fulfill that responsibility that has been given to me. Now, if we consider that in the context of God's servants, God's people, then what is the responsibility? Well, to love one another, to take care of one another, to love each other like the Lord would, to bring the truth, to cultivate and protect the truth, to share the truth, to do that work that Jesus did when He was on the earth. Uh, These are the kinds of things we want to be focused on. These are the kinds of things that consume the steward over the master's goods. And so therefore, in like way, like uh, fashion, these things should consume us as well in the days in which we live. Now, of course, specifically, Uh, the audience of this, as we've mentioned before, is Israel in those days. But you'll remember how in those last days, there will be many Jews who ultimately are about the Lord's business because they've come to faith, be it the 144,000 or any others who may have come to faith through their testimony, certainly the two witnesses when they're here, and all of those other people that ultimately come to faith during that period of time. Uh, So, Their responsibility is to be stewards over that which is the Lord's, and to treat it, work with it, share it, cultivate it, pour themselves into it, be consumed with the idea of of stewarding those things that God has given them. Now, of course, um, or I should say, going on in verse 46, "'Blessed, oh, how happy is that servant uh, whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him a ruler over all his goods.'" The idea here of, of being rewarded for being a faithful and wise steward and servant. Um, if you are found faithful in a few things here on the earth, you're found. You're found. You'll be given more responsibility therefore than in the millennium and those kinds of things. Wow, well, something's going on out there. The dogs are sending their best. So the idea there of being rewarded for the faithfulness with which uh, the, that stewardship is discharged. Now, by contrast, verse 48, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he is not aware of. And he'll cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very strong contrast. Reward for those servants who are, in fact, faithful and wise, but punishment for those servants, maybe even quote-unquote servants, uh, who in fact uh, aren't looking for the master are not uh, taking seriously their stewardship and that kind of thing. Now, of course, we want to understand that in Jesus' teaching, and as was common in, uh, uh, in, in that culture, there is very strong contrasting kinds of styles uh, or, or elements generally brought up in teaching. Um, Jesus would say things like, uh, "Unless you hate, you know, your mother and father, um, you know, you love, you know, love the Lord, but hate your mother and father." Those kinds of ideas. Um, there is such strong contrast in these things. There is extreme kinds of contrast brought out in those kinds of things in order to make the point. The point here is that of the difference between a faithful steward and a non-faithful steward, and even pretty fair to say somebody who is in fact a believer in that time as opposed to a non-believer. If you can judge a tree by its fruit, then the tree, the fruit of a good tree is good fruit. The fruit of a bad tree is bad fruit. And so therefore, a good tree, or in this case a good steward, is one recognized by the good fruit that he bears. He is faithful and he is wise and he does that which his master has entrusted, takes care of that which his master has entrusted to him. However, a bad steward Somebody who's, by contrast, on the other end of the spectrum. Somebody who is not, in fact, faithful or wise. Therefore, receives punishment rather than the reward, like a faithful servant does. And so the encouragement here is to be about the Lord's business in the days leading up to his return. It's a very strong, it's in some of the strongest terms, that we want to make sure that we understand the priority of being about the Lord's business. As a matter of fact, notice at the outset how the wicked servant is described. He says my master is delaying his coming. Now I'm not trying to get on the kick here about, you know, well, um uh you know, somebody holds a different view than a pretrib view and says well my master delays his coming that he is a wicked slothful servant. That's not my intention here. I think there are very devout believers that have varying degrees uh, varying uh, approaches to eschatology and no one eschatology necessarily lends itself to someone being more on fire or less on fire. I think that's a very subjective thing that is far more rooted in the personality of the believer than it is in the, in the particular eschatology that he espouses. You could make a case that if you knew the Lord was coming back today, you'd want to have your hand on the plow. If you thought he could come back today, you don't know he's coming today, but if you thought he was coming back today, in other words, if you believe he could come at any time, you would be working hard and you could argue that somebody who says, well, the Lord's not coming till after the sixth seal is broken or something. I don't have to really be about his business until I really start seeing those signs. I think it's unfair to sort of cast that mindset on somebody who holds a different view of when the rapture takes place. So I'm not trying to do that. I don't think that's fair. Uh, the counter argument is sometimes presented by those who hold that view saying, well, if you think Jesus is potentially coming back today, you're just going to be waiting for him to come back and you're not going to be doing anything. I've never imagined such a thing, so to me that's a completely foreign idea. That doesn't mean nobody does, and so that's why I say I'm not trying to like label somebody and nail them down as being lazy or slothful or particularly vigorous for the Lord's work based on their timing of the rapture. It could be, but it's not necessarily. Let me just simply say the point of what Jesus is saying, though, is that somebody does not believe their master is really coming back at any time soon. Some The mindset can be that of just sort of sinking back into the world and and sort of approaching things from a worldly perspective. You would get the sense from this text that we're talking about somebody who's not a believer, somebody who's not really looking for the Lord to come back. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter warns about people like this who say that, um, where is the sign of his coming? You know, people have been saying this forever, and, and they sort of just blow off this whole idea that the Lord could be coming back. Well, Peter goes on to say, look, you know, don't think the Lord is slack in inserting his promises, as some consider slackness, but rather recognize that from the Lord's perspective, a thousand years is as a day and a day like a thousand years. Time is irrelevant to God. He's not doing something based on our sense of time. He's going to do things on his timetable. It's not a question of uh, of if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, and that's entirely determined by the Lord, uh, and so we want this really speaks more to the attitude uh certainly than it does any particular eschatology band, but the point being is that any believer, certainly those at that time, but I would suggest that it's a it's a fair admonition to us in our day as well that uh before the 70th week of Daniel, before these events take place in and around Israel and those kinds of things, before the, the Antichrist comes on the scene and all that stuff, even people in our day, believers, we should be about the, about the work of the Lord as a priority, not as an afterthought, not as something we try to squeeze in. Uh, we should be about the Lord's business as stewards over that which he's entrusted to us. So the admonition is clear. The encouragement is a strong one. And we want to make sure we take heed to this. After having said everything that he said about what the last days were going to look like, he says, be about your master's business. You don't know when these things are going to come to pass, so live as though they were coming to pass soon. He is coming soon, so be about his business. Again, it's a very simple and very clear um encouragement to us. And it's one that I think bears repeating as often as possible. There is a tendency, uh, probably more so in the West than in some other parts of the world where believers are maybe persecuted and live under the daily threat of death, which by the way is another way we could go and see the Lord. We might just pass from this earth or we might be killed for our faith or something like that based on where you are that has a, a varying degrees of probability and possibility. But here in the West, we generally are Christians at very low cost, and we don't generally think about the idea of Christ coming with lots of vigor and enthusiasm, because by and large, most of us enjoy our lives now. Um, That mindset is one that can be very, very dangerous for believers. We ought not be content to build our kingdoms on this world where moth uh, destroys and rust decays and all this kind of thing but rather to store up our treasures in heaven where these things cannot affect it. Peter says that this reward that we have is imperishable. It is kept in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God for that time. And so that is the place we want our focus, our ambitions, our desires, our sense of satisfaction truly to be focused upon, not this world. And so in this end of this discussion that Jesus shares about the about the last things, he finishes with a very strong encouragement, which, again, I think is a valid one for believers to consider even today. So that being said, that brings us to a close on our study of the, the Olivet Discourse. I was going to say the Sermon on the Mount. The Olivet Discourse, again, this is part of a larger study on eschatology, so we have a lot more to cover in terms of uh, the unfolding last things as the Bible describes them. We're going to talk about things like Daniel's 70th week. We're going to go over that again just to kind of explain what that's all about. We're going to talk about the millennium again a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, the final judgment. We're going to talk about uh, all these kinds of things as we make our way through the rest of our study on this. And we're, of course, we're going to interdisperse that between our other studies in Romans and various things like that. And so I uh, appreciate you watching, listening, and joining in. I hope, that, um, I hope that you've got an ever-increasing hunger and thirst for prophecy. Again, we talk about prophecy for a number of reasons. One of them is because the scripture spends a large amount of time on the subject. Uh, It's been said that somewhere between 28 and 30 percent of the scripture has to do with prophecy. Not all of that is eschatology. Some of that is Christ's first coming. Some of that is uh, various other kinds of prophecy that, that appear in the scriptures. But a pretty good amount of that is actually having to do with last things. And so, We don't do ourselves any favors by setting that topic aside just because it can be challenging and in some places even difficult. And so we want to make sure that's part of our regularly balanced diet as believers in the Word because it's part of the Word. We should be studying it. We should know all of the Word. We should make it a point to study all of the Scripture, and prophecy is certainly among those topics within it. Uh, Secondly, if we don't study prophecy, then we are likely misunderstanding other elements of Scripture. Uh, Think of any book that you might read, a history book, or maybe a a book that tells a story. If you took, let's just say, 15% of his eschatology-based prophecy, I don't know the actual statistic, but let's say 15% of any story or history book that you'd read, you just took 15% out of it. Well, you'd still have a pretty good idea of much of the overall history or story, but there'd be a pretty significant black hole in there that no doubt would have some bearing on the rest of the story or on the rest of the history. Well, that's certainly true in Scripture. If God is deemed to put this in there for us, it's because He wants us to know it, and it likely has something to do with something else in the Scripture. And without that component, we are going to be prone to misunderstand some other elements of the Scripture. So, we ought not avoid the topic but rather try to understand it, synthesize it with with the rest of our knowledge of Scripture, and do our best to recognize what God is trying to teach us through it. So studying eschatology is just part of what we study in the Scripture. It's not the only thing we study. We do spend a lot of time on it on this channel because it's a topic that oftentimes is neglected. And it's also a topic that is very intimidating to a lot of people, which, again, is one of the reasons why we're doing this particular study, is to uh, try to take the edge off, take, take some of the fear away from studying these things. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a, tr- there's a blessing given out to those who read it, who hear it, who live it out. The study of this topic is a joyful one, uh, when Paul talks about looking, you know, with expectation to uh, the coming of our great Lord, our, of our of our God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His glorious appearing. When Jesus talks about His glorious appearing, when we see His glorious appearing described in Scripture, this is something that should well up within us a deep desire. Yes, Lord, please come soon. Even like uh, Paul would say, "Maranatha, come quickly, Lord," uh, or or come, Lord. And uh, John would say, at "The end of Revelation, come quickly." This is the anticipation and expectation. Uh, This is the the joy-filled anticipation that dwells within the heart of a believer who is excited to see his Lord. And if you're not excited to see the Lord, you should be thinking, why? Why not? This is something for us to mull over and consider. Um, We don't want to be sleeping at his appearing, at his coming for us. We want to be hand on the plow. So let me go ahead and finish there. If you have any thoughts, questions, or anything like that, feel free to share them and uh, we'll go ahead and do our best to respond to those. But thanks for watching and thanks for listening again. Father, we pray that in these last days that we would become students of your word in such a way where it builds, it fortifies, it fills us with a sense of excitement. The the thrill of knowing that we might see Jesus anytime uh, is something that should lie as a bedrock foundation for a believer. So we thank you for this, Father. Help Help cultivate that within our hearts so that Uh, We would not be averse to this subject, but that we would be well-versed in this subject. Thank you, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and bless you, and we do, in fact, look forward to Jesus' coming to snatch away his bride, and then, ultimately, to establish his kingdom here on the earth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.